Thanks for checking out this sermon at New Beginnings. As a church, we exist to become an authentic, biblical community. That transforms our city and impacts the world. With the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to make you aware of a few things before we begin. First, we would love to connect with you on our website. NBBCTX.org. There you can find more information about who we are. Additional resources and links to our social media network. As well as an opportunity to give. To what God is doing in and through our church. We hope you enjoy this message. Good morning, good morning. It's great to be with you uh, today. Uh, listen, if you're new here, my name is Todd Connitz. I serve as one of the lead pastors uh, here at New Beginnings. Uh, as you know, we are one church. We meet in two locations, and as I say uh, almost every time I'm here, I, I most Sundays am at the Spring Hill campus, and occasionally they let me come up north to be uh, with you guys, and it's a joy every time I'm here. And let me just say, um, one of the things that I'm just overwhelmed with constantly is the, the testimonies and the stories of life change that, that just God is doing through you here uh, on this campus, in this city, in this county. Uh, God is just doing some amazing things through this campus, and I'm just overwhelmed and grateful for you. And I don't get a chance to tell you as much as I'd like to, but uh, God is just doing something special, and I want you to know what a joy it is just to be a part um, of it in a small way and to watch it and to see how God is using you. It's just overwhelming. Um, and I think you've got a pretty good staff here, too. You, you, this, camp, this campus is blessed with a great team, um, the best that I know of. Uh, yeah, you can put your hands together. Uh, just unbelievable way God has blessed you. And, you know, this morning it's appropriate that you applause uh, the staff, uh, they're doing a great job, but also, uh, you know, there are just moments in life that are um, moments where you just have to applause. You have to put your hands together. You want to shout. You want to, you know, stand up and put your hands up, and it's just a moments of celebration. And uh, there, there, there are two little video clips I want you to see today that kind of shows uh, different sides of this. The, the first one is, is this video here. of It's off the Leonard, defended by Simmons. Is this the dagger? this game and watch the highlights of the reels. Yeah, so I'm a big basketball fan. This is Kawhi Leonard hitting a game-winning shot, buzzer beater, in game seven of the Eastern Conference semifinals. It's the first time, if you're a basketball fan, you may know this. If you're not, you don't care, but I'm going to tell you anyway. It's the first time in a game seven uh, that there's been a buzzer beater in NBA history. I mean, the crowd went nuts. I'm not even a Raptors fan. My adrenaline, just as a, just a former athlete, just kind of went up and it fired me up just a little bit. And so there's the moments that you want to celebrate. Put your hands together and cheer. Um, and then there are moments like this video clip here. Uh, if you didn't know it, this is a, a clip from the New York Senate couple of weeks ago when they passed um, a law that provided uh, abortion uh, to women who have full term um, in their pregnancy. A law that is allowing the life of a baby who could live outside the womb to be put to death. And the reaction when I saw this video for the very first time, it, it honestly made me sick to my stomach to think that we're applauding such things. Like we're, we're, we're coming to a place in our nation that the moral con conscience is so seared that this would be a cause for celebration like the game-winning shot of the Eastern Conference semifinal basketball game. You got one that's a legitimate reason to celebrate an athletic event that's just great and everybody who's excited about it wants to put their hands together and celebrate. And on the other hand, you just passed a law that would terminate the life of a child and you get the same response from lawmakers. It is chilling. We have crossed the threshold in a nation where we now are celebrating extinguishing the life of the most vulnerable in our society. And this is what Isaiah told us would happen. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. Isaiah says, says this, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. That is where we've come to as a nation. 
where we are, we, are, we are calling what is evil good and we are calling what is good evil. And, and this, this is a, a, a season right now, we are entering into a, a season, and politically because of the season we're in, this is going to be a heightened conversation in culture and society. And we as believers need to understand what's at stake in regards to this issue of life. Statistically speaking, it is overwhelming to see where we are in regards to just the sheer amount of abortions that are happening and have, ha- have, have happened in our history. And just thinking about the United States, it's overwhelming when you look at the s- statistical data. One in four women by the age of 45 will have had at least one abortion. As of uh, 2014, there was a, actually a turn in 2014 where abortions uh, have, praise Jesus, been on the decline in our nation. Uh, 924,000 abortions in 2014. It's been uh, declining, which is a good thing. And a little later, I'll tell you why I think that's the case. But we're still seeing, even in the decline, well over 800, almost 900,000 abortions happening annually in our country. Since 1970, there has been 61 million babies aborted in our nation. Last year alone, Planned Parenthood provided 332,757 abortions. Since 1970, that organization, which is the leading organization in uh, the abortion industry, they have performed since 1970 8 million, almost 9 million abortions. When we think about this globally, Worldwide abortion is, is, is staggering. We, we have seen since 1980, since 1980, 1.5 billion lives ended in the womb. 1.5 billion. And by the time I finish the sermon today, according to all of the data and statistics, by the time I end the sermon today, 3,000 babies will have been aborted worldwide before the sermon ends. And if you look at the countdown clock, I've looked at it this week on a number of occasions. In fact, I left it up for a couple of days, and it was just staggering to see how the numbers add up. But it's basically an abortion, 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 an abortion. Every second, every moment of every day of every year. It is horrific. We are in a crisis morally as a nation. And I want to talk about this very openly and frankly this morning because it's a subject that we cannot run from. We must be able to deal with as believers. And I want to say to those of you in the room um, who might not take the conservative Christian perspective, you might even take the opposite perspective. What I want to present to you this morning is not my opinion. It's not a political, Republican, conservative opinion. This is not... Anything that I would say to you would be a a purpose of some sort of agenda for a donkey or an elephant. I want to talk about what the Bible teaches about this subject and why this matters for you and me as followers of Jesus. For those of you in the room that have made the decision or maybe you have encouraged a child or a girlfriend or a spouse to have an abortion, so whether it's something you've, you've done or something you've encouraged, I want you to hear today this message, and I'm going to be very direct and frank about what the Bible teaches, and it's going to come with some conviction, but I want you to know my heart behind it. My heart behind it is not to condemn you for a decision that you've made, but to just to speak about the reality of that decision. But I want to do so through the lens of the, of the gospel of Jesus, which the gospel of Jesus says to you, no matter who you are, where you've been or what you've done, that there is room at the cross for you. And that the grace of God is sufficient. And that no matter what decision you've ever made in your life, I want you to know that Jesus loves you where you are, despite what you've done. And the shame and the guilt that you feel can be erased by the blood of Jesus Christ. But we've got to talk about this. And so this morning, I want to talk about why I believe this is a political issue. 
why I believe it's a political issue. And for some of you who are conservative Christians, you may think all of a sudden when I say, well, it's a political issue, like you had me and then you lost me because it's not a political issue, it's a theological issue. And I would say to you, just hang tight and roll with me for a moment, all right? For some of you, you're more of a liberal perspective, and you would say, dang right, it's not, uh, 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 it's, dang right, it's a political issue, and the church needs to stay out of it. Stop trying to legislate morality, which we'll talk about in just a little bit. And so for some of you, you're like, yes, it is a political issue, and the church needs to stop trying to legislate its theology and just let the government do what the government's going to do and let the church do what the church is supposed to do, and let's have a separation of church and state. And so, listen, I'm going to say to you, hey, hang with me and roll with me for a moment, all right? When we think about abortion as a political issue, let me kind of explain what I mean. When you think about political structure, political structure is simply this. It's how a government operates. It's how a a government governs its people. It's It's the structure by which laws and freedoms are established for the people of that government or of that nation. So let's kind of think about it in terms of a kingdom. All right. So we live in the kingdom of the United States of America, right? So we live in the, in the kingdom of the United States of America, which means that we have a political structure. That political structure is through the democratic process. And so what we do is through elections, we elect certain people to represent the values and ethics of the culture in order to establish laws and determine uh, what is right and what is wrong, what we are free to do, what we are not free to do. Are you with me so far? So this is what we do as a nation. So our kingdom operates through that type of political structure. And so here's what that simply means. We, as a, as a, as a culture, um, elect individuals by the people to represent the ethics of the people. Therefore, laws that are passed reinforces the culture of the people. That's, that's where we are. That's the kingdom of the United States of America. But this causes a dilemma for Christians, and here's why. That while we are living in the kingdom of the United States of America, we as believers are a part of a greater kingdom, and that's the kingdom of God. And in the kingdom of God, there is a political structure, but it's not a democracy, it's a theocracy. It's where Jesus reigns as king, and we are his subjects, and he is the one who sets the boundaries and the laws. And as men and women who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, we now gladly submit to him and the order that he has established for his kingdom. I'm going to show you where I get this. In Mark chapter 1, if you'll turn there for a few moments, I'll show you this. It'll be on the screen. If not, we're going to be all over the scriptures this morning. But Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15 is interesting because it's the very first sermon of Jesus. Like it's Jesus coming, like it's, it's his coming out party. He's going to let the world know, hey, Messiah's here. I'm about to start a preaching ministry, and I want you to know from the up front of what I'm about. And his, this is what the scripture says about this, this, this sermon of Jesus. It says, now after John was arrested, John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming, the, the, the gospel of God. So fundamentally, here's what the message of Jesus is. It's a message of hope. It's a message of good news. He came proclaiming the gospel of God, the good news that though we are sinners, that, that he is coming to provide a way that our sins might be forgiven and we might be restored back to God. So if you ever wondered what is the fundamental message of Christianity, it is this, the gospel of God. Now listen to specifically Jesus' message. This is what he says in verse 15. And saying, the time is fulfilled. In other words, the waiting is over. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. This is the message of Jesus. The time is fulfilled. In other words, the waiting is over. Uh, When God created everything in Genesis 1, God created a kingdom. He created a kingdom where he would rule and reign as king. We, as his image bearers, would live in subjection to him as we ruled over his creation as his representatives on the planet. And so he is king, we submit to him, and then under his kingship we are to cultivate Uh, the world. This is God's design from the beginning. But when sin entered the world, here's what happened. There was a rebellion against the kingdom of God. The kingdom of darkness was established. And now because of sin, we live under the domain of the kingdom of darkness. But God promised that there was a day coming when his kingdom once again would come and restore law and order back to what he originally 
intended, that he would send a redeemer. The king would come, set up his kingdom, and restore all things back to himself. So Jesus shows up on the scene, and this is what his message is. I'm going to preach the gospel of God. The kingdom of God is here. The waiting is over. What God promised would come has come, and here is how you enter into the kingdom of God. You repent, you turn from living for the old kingdom, and you believe the gospel. You let your life be radically transformed by the gospel. Paul writes about this in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. He tells us what happens to us when we repent and believe the gospel. Listen to what Paul writes. And he, this is God, he has delivered us from the domain or from the kingdom. If you want to kind of write that next to domain. From the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sin. So when you, by faith, when you repent from your sin, from following the old kingdom, and you believe in Jesus, establishing that he is king, here's what happens. Not only is your sins forgiven, but your sins are forgiven, and you are transferred from the domain, from the kingdom of darkness, into the kingdom of Jesus. And what that simply means is that you are no longer living according to the ethics and value system of the broken, fallen world, but rather you have a king who has a set of ethics and values, and now you have adopted those and you represent those to the world. This is, this is what Jesus has done. So we are now ambassadors. So we live in a broken kingdom, amen, that has broken values and broken ethics. But we live in this broken, fallen kingdom as citizens of another kingdom. So we, we, the Bible would call us ambassadors. You know what an ambassador is, right? An ambassador is a person that leaves their nation or their kingdom and goes to another nation or another kingdom. And while they're there, their sole goal is to live in the other kingdom as a representative of the kingdom that they're from. So there, there may be certain cultural things that they adopt as they live in that other foreign nation, but the fundamental values and ethics that they live according to and what they represent must reflect the kingdom that they're from, not the kingdom that they live in. So you and me, this is where the, the gospel transforms us. We live in a broken kingdom. We are ambassadors. We live in a kingdom that's really not our kingdom, but as we live in this kingdom, we are to reflect the ethics and the values of the kingdom that we belong to. And so when I say that abortion is a political issue, that's what I mean. I don't mean Democrat or Republican. I don't mean American politics. What I mean is, is that we are now a part of a political structure where Jesus alone is king, and he has determined what is right and what is wrong and what is true and what is false, and we now as citizens in his kingdom must live according to the political structure that's been established for us by our king named Jesus. Amen? So, so we've got to understand this is not just about what party you affiliate with. That, that's a broken kingdom. I, I am not pro-life because I have a conservative political position. I am pro-life because I am a citizen of the kingdom of God. And his values must permeate everything of my life, in my life. This is what Tony Evans says about this. The kingdom of gender is the visible demonstration of the comprehensive rule of God over every area of my life. So here's, here's, in essence, what he's saying. That the kingdom of God's aim is to reorient our life as we live here in the broken kingdom to reflect the kingdom that we belong to so that, check this out, the invisible kingdom of God might become visible here. So as our ethics and values and our, our, our culture of the kingdom of God plays itself out in this world, the world gets to see what the kingdom is all about. And so this, this means on this issue of abortion, we must view it not through the lens of popular culture or conservative values, but rather through the lens of the kingdom of God. So this is what we're going to do this morning. As we think about this, the questions we've got to ask is, 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 what does the kingdom of God say about the subject of abortion? How does it handle the subject of abortion? And so there are two fundamental questions that I want to kind of uh, bring about to answer that question. So here's the first question we're going to wrestle with the rest of our time together. 
Um, and, 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 and I'll give you the second one as well. The first question is this. What does God's Word say about the value of human life? That's the first question. So if, if we're going to be kingdom people, how, how do we view human life? How does the kingdom of God view human life? So I want to answer that. The second question is kind of a follow-up question to, to, to that question, which is what does the Bible say about when life begins? When does human life begin? So what is the value of human life? When does human life begin? And if we can come to a theological understanding of those two things, it's going to help shape our view on the subject of abortion. Are, are, if you're with me, say I'm with you. All right, so gra- grab your Bibles real quick. Turn to Genesis chapter 1 as you're turning there. Uh, let me just kind of throw the question out there and give you the answer, and then I'll show you from the text the answer. Uh, so what does God's Word reveal about the value of human life? So let me give you the answer. Every human bears the image of God has intrinsic value and worth and is therefore deserving of equal dignity, respect, and care. This is what the Bible teaches about human life. Every human bears the image of God, has intrinsic value and worth, and is therefore deserving of equal dignity, respect, and value. Uh, Genesis chapter 1 is kind of the go-to for Pastor Connor and I uh, when we're talking about a lot of social issues because this is pre-fall. This is how the world was created to operate. And so a lot of the social issues, if we want to get the answer to them, we've got to go back to the beginning. What did God originally intend and what is his design so that we might see the world rightly? Genesis chapter 1 talks about the value of human life. Look what it says in verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our what? An image. After our likeness. So God created man. This is mankind. He'll clarify that in a moment. In his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So here's what the Bible simply teaches us, that humanity, both male and female, humanity was created in the image of God. Uh, the Hebrew word there, we would, we would translate that and say that the imago Dei. We were created in the imago Dei. So, so what is that? It simply means that we were created to bear the image of God. That when God desired in creating the universe... And all that is, when he desired to create a part of creation that would reflect his character and his glory, God created humanity. And so he says we're created in his likeness and his um, image. So what does that mean, likeness and image? These these words are almost synonymous. They they, they mean similar or reflection. Another way of of understanding this is is the word representative. We were we are, we are created to be God's representatives on earth. So how do we do that? Let me, let me illustrate it for you like this. How many of you have ever been on a lake or uh, at the ocean early in the morning and, and seen the sun come up or been out there early in the morning? Anybody seen that before? So if you're out there in the water, here's what you see, is that as the sun begins to rise, you begin to see the reflection of the sun on the water. And so you, you can know where the sun is based upon what you're seeing in the reflection. So as the sun comes up, what you notice is, is that you see the glow and the glory of the sun reflecting from the water. You can even feel the heat of the sun reflecting from the water. So, so, so the, the, the beauty of the sun, all that there is about the sun can be seen through the reflection in the water without ever really looking at the sun. Are you with me? And so this is the way that we are created to bear the image of God. That, that just like that, that the, 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 the reflection on the water isn't the sun, it's the image of the sun. We are not God. We reflect, we bear witness to the image of God. So as, as, we, as we live and as we work in our gifting, as we uh, 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 cultivate culture, as we live our lives, we, we are a living example. We are an, an image of the creator God that we reflect him like the sun, the water reflects the sun. And this blows my ever-loving mind, and here's why. When you think about the creation, when you think about the world itself, just this, 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 the, 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 the way that God created the universe so, so vast and so beautiful and just mind-blowing. When we think about the other night, my son and I, we were, out, uh, we were looking for shooting stars. We, we've moved out in the country, and uh, we've lived in town uh, all of the kids' lives. And he told me, I've never seen a shooting star. I'm like, great, let's go out there and try to find a shooting star. So we've been laying out looking for shooting stars and, and just talking about the vastness of the universe. Did you know the universe is by the smartest people on the planet? It's, 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 it's divided up into two categories, the, the known universe and the unknown universe. And I love that because the smartest people on the planet, the best they can do is, hey, well, there's that what we know, and then there's that thing we don't know. 
In other words, the universe is so big that the smartest people on the planet say, okay, we, we're able to know this much of the universe, and now through science and through study, we're, we're learning about new planets and new solar systems and all kinds of crazy things in this known universe that we're still discovering. In fact, there are planets being discovered almost daily. There are, there are, there are new, new parts of the universe that are just blowing our mind. You know that there are planets that, that if you were to compare the earth to the planet, it would, make, it would like, be like taking a ping pong ball and, and holding it up to a basketball. And we're not even getting into the unknown universe. And yet, out of all of that, you think about the, 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 the sights there are to see on planet Earth. As small as we are in the vastness of the universe. And yet, there's not one part of the universe that was made to reflect the image of God except for you and me. We bear the fingerprints of God. We are the only parts of God crea- God's creation that bears the image of God. The planets, they don't do it. The solar system doesn't do it. The stars don't do it. The trees don't do it. The mountains don't do it. Your dog, as great as your dog is, and I know he's great, I promise, we know. We've seen Facebook, right? And honestly, can I just tell you, we don't care what he eats, all right? Let's just know we don't care, all right? We know your dog is amazing, but he doesn't bear the image of God like it's a she. She doesn't either. Like my daughter, my youngest, has allergies to animals. Like and she so wants a dog. It is ridiculous. The whole family wants an animal. They want a, they want a pet. My oldest daughter is now like, just get us a goat. Maybe she won't, you know, swell up over to a goat. Like such compassion there. And, and we, can't, we can't get an animal. I mean, she just breaks out in hives. And I know you're like, oh, you get a hypoallergenic. That causes that as well in her. I'm like, we just can't do it. Not one time have my wife and I ever sat down and said, let's make a pros and cons list. Do we give up Micah? Do we get a dog? Or do we, you know. <laughs> like, we've never done that. We've never said, on the one hand, you know, and we've never done that. Why? Because she has value that is greater than any animal we could have. Why? She bears the image of God. Why would we never have that conversation? Because we know that there is something about her that is uniquely created, that she bears the fingerprints of God. Therefore, there's nothing we would trade her for. There is value she possesses. Matt Chandler says it like this. He says, The Imago Dei is God's investment in humanity of godlike glory and moral capacity to reign and rule over the earth as God's representatives. This gives humanity intrinsic value. Therefore, there is a dignity all humanity deserves, regardless of whether they're in the womb or out of the womb. And that value is not dependent upon whether they've earned it, earned it or they've worked for it what they make, where they live, where they're from, what they accomplish, that value is not determined by what they do or accomplish. You see, we are not utilitarian in our theology. We don't, we don't see people as commodities. Can I just help pro-lifers in the room? If, you, if you're a pro-lifer in here and I, you ever have ever used this argument, please never do it again. Well, how do we know that we're not aborting the next person who's going to cure cancer, or the next person who's going to be the, the next Billy Graham, or the, ne- you, you know, the next president of the United States could be in somebody's womb, and we're going to abort them? Look, I, I know that you think that sounds smart, but it's actually very dumb because you're justifying what if they're not? Are they disposable? The value of an individual is not dependent upon what they accomplish, but whose image they were made in. This is why at both of our campuses today, there are hundreds of children. And in both of our campuses, there are rooms devoted to children with special needs. They're going to get the same love and care and devotion and resources as any other kid in our kids' ministry. Why? Because they're made in the image of God. We are not utilitarian. We, we see the value of human life because of whose image we are made in. And this must be fundamentally where we start. So what does the Bible teach about this subject? Listen to what Jared Wilson says when he says, when you understand the biblical worldview of 
life. Look, look, what, look at what Jared says. He says this in a, in a book called Unparalleled, which is a book written to just talk about the wonder of the gospel. He says this, the, the, the biblical ground of, uh, for the sacredness of human life um, has nothing to do with a person's usefulness to a family or a society. The Bible calls us to pro-life position based on the reality that all persons are made in the image of God, that God has created us equal. And that therefore, all life is precious, whether a person cures cancer or gets cancer, wins an Olympic medal or special Olympics medal, can compose like Mozart or sings like Roseanne Barr. Why? Because every human bears the image of God and has intrinsic value and worth and therefore is deserving of equal dignity, respect, and care. That's what the Bible teaches about the value of human life. So let's answer the second question. The second question is this. What does God's word reveal about when life begins? Let me give you the answer to it. And if you want to go ahead and turn there, Psalm 139 is where we'll start. There'll be several verses I read, but Psalm 139 is where we'll start. Let me give you the answer to that. What does God's word reveal about when human life begins? All human life, according to Scripture, starts in the womb from the moment of conception. All human life starts in the womb from the moment of conception. Listen to what Psalm 139 says about this. The Bible is full of this. I don't have time to go through all of the passages of Scripture. Let me just give you a few uh, bigger ones here. Psalm 139, verse 13, I love this. He says, for you, this is the, the author speaking to God, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's what? Womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Listen to this. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. The scripture is clear here. God is intimately involved with our development from utero. That, that what's I love about this passage of scripture is that the psalmist is writing from a position of personhood. You, when I was in my mother's womb, you, you God knitted me a person. You made me. While I was in my, you knitted me together. Now think about the, the intimate involvement. He, the, the author is saying this, God is not just aware of the baby in the womb. God is intimately involved in the development of the baby in the womb. Like a person might take yarn and, 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 and crochet needles and, and, and make a shawl. This is what they're describing here. You knitted me together. The development of that baby in the womb is God, his hands are are there and he's forming. And I love this. You formed my unformed, you, you knew my unformed substance. Listen, from the unformed substance to the birth, God is involved. And it's all in the context of personhood. You knew me. You had plans for me. You were knitting me together. This is mind blowing. The prophet Jeremiah speaks of this in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 4. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, listen to this, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. You hear, do you see the, the personal nature of what's being spoken here. I knew you even before you were in the womb and when I formed you and when I, I consecrated you while you were still in the womb. He's telling Jeremiah, even when you were being formed inside of your mother, I was at work in your life. Job, Job writes this in Job 31 verse 15. I love this. Did not he who made me in the womb make him? He who made me made him. And did not, listen, and did not one fashion us in the womb. Again, using the same words that we see in Psalm 139, this knitting together, this fashioning. It, by the way, this word fashion is the same word that's used in, in the Garden of Eden when God fashioned man. He formed man. 
that in the womb, God is intimately involved with the development. And, and this, is, again, it's a personal nature. He formed me. He knew me. I want you to think about this one. Jesus and John the Baptist. The angel Gabriel shows up to Mary and says, you're pregnant. You're, you're with child. What's conceived in you is from the Holy Spirit. And he begins to refer to the baby in the womb as a person. He is going to be a son, and he is going to have the name Jesus. And he is going to be the redeemer of the world. You're, you're seeing that the angel is referring to the baby in the womb as a person, and that person happens to be God who's putting on skin. And at the same time, you have this miraculous conception with Mary. You have another uh, miraculous conception that, 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 that Mary's cousin Elizabeth is pregnant, even though she didn't think she could have kids. And she's pregnant. She's a few months ahead of Mary, and she's pregnant with the prophet uh, John the Baptist. And so you, you find as soon as Mary hears that she's pregnant, maybe Elizabeth was a mentor, she goes to Elizabeth. I don't know if you know the story, but there's this moment where Elizabeth is there, and Mary shows up. And when Mary comes, Elizabeth's face lights up, and she says, I am in the presence of the, of the mother of my Lord. There was something in Elizabeth's spirit that recognized that the baby in the womb of Mary was God in the flesh. There was awareness of personhood. And you know what Elizabeth said? She said, when you came in my presence, the baby inside of me leapt. In other words, he got excited. I want you to think about this. The person in the womb of Elizabeth recognized the person in the womb of Mary. And those individual persons, I don't know miraculously, spiritually, I don't know what happened, but there was a moment where there was a recognition of personhood even in the womb. You know what's crazy? This is before 3D sonogram, right? This is before modern science. All of these verses of Scripture are describing what we now can see. I mean, this blows my mind. We can take pictures of babies in the womb and we can see their facial features. I'm talking early in the pregnancy. Sucking their thumb, getting restless, responding to the voice of a parent. We can watch video of what Psalm 139 says. You, 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 I was intricately woven in my mother's womb. We actually can go to the doctor and watch the intricate work of God in the womb of the mother. I don't think by, the Bible's not a scientific book. But if science would just wake up and pay attention, they'll learn something. And what's crazy about this, so when does life begin? According to Scripture, all human life starts in the womb, the moment of conception. We see this very clearly in Scripture that it is recognized a person exists in the womb. And not only does that person exist, God is familiar with them. But science verifies all of this. Science, now there is no, we're not arguing this anymore. <coughs> Listen to a couple of quotes here. Uh, a lady by the name of Sarah Terzo, she's a um, pro-life advocate. She says, science teaches without reservation that life begins at conception. It's a scientific fact that an organism exists after conception that did not exist before conception. This is, again, according to science. This new organism has its own DNA distinct from the mother and the father, meaning that it is neither part of the mother nor part of the father. As the embryo grows, it develops a heartbeat. By the way, the laws that are being passed right now are attempting to be passed in our nation right now, which are unbelievable victories uh, on behalf of the unborn on the basis of this science right here. Its own circulatory system and its own organs from conception, it is a new organism that is alive and will continue to grow and develop as long as nutrition is provided and its life is not ended through violence or illness. Uh, Mary Elizabeth Williams is a uh, pro-choice advocate. And she wrote an article couple of years ago, and here's what the title of the article was. The title of the article was, So What If Abortion Ends Life? This is what she wrote. Yet I know that throughout my own pregnancies, I never wavered for a moment in the belief that I was carrying a human life inside of me. I believe that's what a fetus is. It's a human life, and that doesn't make me one iota less solidly pro-choice. Uh, an apologist and a Christian author, Gregory uh, Kokel, he writes, this abortion involves killing and discarding something that's alive. Now, whether it's right 
or not to take the life of anything, of any living being, depends entirely upon the answer to one question. What kind of being is it? The answer one gives is pitiful, uh, pivotal, the deciding element that trumps all other considerations. Listen to this. Let me put the issue plainly. If the unborn is not a human person, no justification for abortion is necessary. However, if the unborn is a human person, no justification for abortion is adequate. All human life, according to the Scriptures, is made in the image of God, therefore has intrinsic value and worth and deserves dignity and care and respect. And according to both theology and science, life, human life, begins at conception. Hear me say this. We are no longer having this argument on the basis of when life begins. Science has settled that in regards to the way the culture sees this issue. That's why even in the laws that have been passed the last couple of weeks, in the attempt, their argument is not against the, 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 the validity that it's life in the womb. It's now solely upon the choice of the mother. And when you start making choices on that when you start making the decision based on the choice of the mother, you get into a very slippery slope that is dangerous for culture and society. So what do you mean? Listen. If we recognize life in the womb and then we make the decision that we can terminate that life based upon the choice of the mother, here's what that means. It means that this decision is predicated on the belief that the mother's life has more value than the life of the child. Look at me. That's an Imago Day issue. That is saying that the life of the mother and the rights of the mother are greater than the rights and the life of the baby. And you say, well, the baby is inside the womb of the mother. Yes, that, that is the dwelling place where it finds its protection, safety, and nourishment. We have a moral obligation as mankind to care for the most vulnerable among us. Who is more vulnerable than that? And by the way, when you look at the reasons mothers have statistically, this is not, I'm not talking about, again, I want to be sympathetic to certain circumstances that we are talking about in our nation today, but I want you to hear me say this. The, the, the top five reasons that, that women are having abortions in our culture today based upon statistics, listen to this, inadequate finances is top. Tied with that is not ready for the responsibility. Number three, a woman's life would be changed. So I don't want to have a baby because my life will change. Relationship problems, not married. I want to be a single mom, too young or immature. Those are the top five reasons that we're choosing to abort babies that we acknowledge as a human life in the womb. Let me ask you this question. If, if, if you use those reasons to justify the preborn, putting a preborn to death, why then would you not use the same justification to put to death a three-year-old? If we acknowledge that it's a life in the womb, and based upon convenience, we make it okay for a woman to end the life of the child that is in her womb. What prohibits a mother from making the same, or father, from making the same decision when the baby is outside the womb? And you say, well, it'll never go there. It already is. That's why we're having the debate of what kind of care a failed abort, a kid, a baby that is a, a part of a failed abortion might be able to provide, get provided for him or her. If, you, if a mother can, 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 can end the life of a baby inside the womb because of inadequate finances or not ready responsibility, woman's life would be changed, relationship problems, too young or immature, then, then why in the world would we not permit a mother to say, look, I just didn't know it was going to be like this. We are living in very scary times. When a U.S. senator makes the statement, listen, we are... We, we, we are, are inhumane, and he it makes the statements to say that we either end the life in the womb or end the life outside the womb. 
when we make statements that are so devaluing of human life. I read an article this week that made the statement that because of the poverty rate that many kids who are born into unwed homes would experience and the cost that they would have in society that we're better off to end the life of the child. It's better for society and that child than to bring them into the world under those conditions. And that's, that's listen to me, that is scary to me. We have lost our mind if that's where we're moving. Because if you use that same reasoning while the child is in the womb, eventually you will use that same reasoning when the child is outside the womb. We are living in, in unbelievably chaotic times. And we better have a theology that undergirds how we navigate through these turbulent waters. This is right in front of us as believers, and we must be representatives of the kingdom of God. You know what, how the kingdom of God views children? According to Psalm 127, Behold, children are a heritage of the Lord, the fruit of the womb of reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the, child, are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Listen to what Jesus says. In a culture, by the way, that, that discarded children, in a society where even the disciples were telling Jesus, children are a nuisance. Listen to what Jesus says to them. Then children were brought to him. This is Matthew chapter 19 that he might lay hands on them and pray for them. The disciples rebuked the people. And he said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. Listen to this. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God values children. And therefore, we in this room, we must be men and women who reflect the value system of the kingdom. Therefore, we place a value on children. Listen, both in the womb and outside the womb. And this is where I think that we've got to be careful not to let those in their society and culture who want to dismiss the issue and say, oh, yeah, you guys, all you, you Christians, you just care about the life in the womb. You don't care about the life out of the womb. And they're ignoring the statistics that there are more being done for the poor there is more being done against racial inequality. There is more being done for most of the social issues that we're facing in our culture by the church than by the government. And so let me just kind of just lay it out there for you. We are pro-life from the womb to the tomb. But listen, we can't talk about, we can't dismiss the womb issue because we got issues outside the womb. We, we have got to stand on this issue and band together. So let me give you a couple of things to write down. How do we move forward? What do we need to do? How do we as Christians respond to such a crazy culture? Let me give you a couple of things to write down. Listen, listen. we must engage the culture, and here's, here's five ways that we do that. We must represent the kingdom on this issue. We must represent the kingdom on this issue. Church, look at me. We don't represent Republicans. We don't represent Democrats. We're not into the donkey or the elephant. We represent the kingdom of God. And so we must stand on the foundation laid out in Scripture about the value of human life, about when life begins, and we must be an advocate for the unborn because that is the kingdom of God's perspective. And therefore, that must be our perspective, and we must not waver from that. Here's number two. We must love unwed, expectant mothers and provide alternative options. Most of the women who have abortions are not having abortions because they're evil women. It's because they're desperate, and they're scared, and they don't know what to do. And guess what? All of the organizations that are part of the abortion industry, they have open arms and warm hearts and they embrace and they say, hey, let's give you this option. Meanwhile, the church criticizes and condemns. What we must do is come alongside these very terrified, scared individuals and provide hope that's found in Jesus and, and come alongside to help support them financially, walk with them through the pregnancy and even offer a place for their child to be raised if they are not able to do so. We must, we must be for the unwed expectant mothers and provide alternative options. Number three, adopt and foster children. 
We must adopt and foster children. Do you realize today there are more churches in the state of Texas than there are orphans? Which means we could end the, 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 the orphan problem today as believers. There are more churches than orphans, which means if we just decided we are going to care for children who don't have homes and families. And listen, and the more we would adopt, the more other mothers who are, don't know what to do, they might find another advocate and another avenue and someone that would take their child. They might see that there is hope if they would just carry that baby through the pregnancy, that there'd be a family that would embrace them and raise them as their own. Here's number four. We must express love and give care to women who have had abortions. We must express love and give care to women who have had abortions. I, I want you to hear me say this. If you're in this room and you have had an abortion or you've encouraged an abortion, I want you to know that you are loved and we will walk with you in whatever shame or guilt you're feeling because of that decision. And I want you to know you're not alone. There are dozens of women in our church who have made that decision, who have, have, have opened up and expressed the decision that they've made who have found freedom in Jesus Christ. There is mercy and there is forgiveness. And you can take what is done in the dark and you can bring it into the light. And we want to provide a place for you to do that. There's a, 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 an email address I want to put up for you. It's, it's cares, a care at nbbctx.org. This is an email address that will go to Pastor Connor and myself. Where if you have made this decision or you know someone who has made this decision or you are contemplating this decision, we want you to email us. We have women who are ready to mentor and to walk with you toward healing. We have organizations that would be um, other options for you. If you are contemplating having an abortion, we want to walk alongside of you. You will not receive condemnation. You will receive love and care. We do want to encourage you to email us and let us walk with you in this struggle, in this battle. Here's number five. Number five, we must pray for brokenness and repentance. We must ask God to bring about revival in our churches, in our cities, in our nation in regards to this issue of life. We as a nation need to repent. And that starts with repentance in this room. You say, I've never had an abortion and I'm pro-life. But have we been advocates for the unborn outside of just a political position. And listen, I believe the greatest sin of this generation is not going to be those who commit abortion or have an abortion. I believe the greatest sin of our society is going to be the church who is silent on the issue. I look back at the history of the genocide in Rwanda. I look back on what happened in the 1930s and 40s with Nazi Germany. And I asked the question, where was the church of Jesus Christ? How could we sit back and let those things happen? I believe there's a day coming when my, gener my, my children and their children are going to look back at history and they're going to go, where was the church? Millions of babies being murdered every day. Where was the church? Let's be the generation. Let's be the church that gets in the fight stands for life and that cares for the unborn. Amen? I'm going to pray over you and then we're going to have our, our guys taken off. And Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We ask now in the name of Jesus, you would stir us to a place where we would act upon what we know. Forgive us for apathy, passivity, for being silent. Give us the boldness and courage to love people where they are. Proclaim what is true and see your kingdom invade a broken culture, a broken kingdom. In Jesus' name.